0: This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: I am thinking of the days without end of my life, says the narrator, Thomas McNulty. Time was not something then we thought of as an item that possessed an ending. Magical words that linger long after you read the closing pages. Hello, I'm Jane Fowler and a very, very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. It is an enormous privilege to welcome Sebastian Barry, poet, playwright, and author of seven novels. Two previous novels, A Long, Long Way and The Secret Scripture, were shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and now, Days Without End, his latest novel has been nominated too. Days Without End won the Costa Book of the Year Award earlier this year. The judges described it as a miracle of a book, both epic and intimate. More recently, it won the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction and was praised for the unfaltering power of its narrative voice. Days Without End sings from the very first page. It's narrated by Thomas McNulty whose story starts in Sligo during the potato famine. His mother and sister die of starvation on the kitchen floor. His father also dies. Thomas stows away in one of the so-called coffin ships to Canada, a six-week journey of unspeakable horror. Hunger is the hallmark of his life as he wanders the new land in search of food and work. In the midst of a storm, he meets a fellow vagrant, John Cole. We meet them as children, each cast aside from a previous life. Days Without End tells the story of how these boys survive in a succession of battles and wars, first against the Indians and then during the Civil War. It tells the dark story of the founding of America with descriptions of brutality and revenge that leave you unable to breathe but the journey is filtered through prose in which every sentence has the cadence and lilt of the most exquisite music and where love and friendship flourish please welcome sebastian barry Thank you.
0: just so you notice I I wore my subtle tartan jacket for you. I also have my um, uh, cactus socks on for the, my bowler tie. What's come over me? I don't know. I'm almost a Texan. I don't know if that's a good thing. A Scottish Texan. There are many of those, of course. Uh, in fact, um, one of the little um, clues for this book, because Basically, you're looking for the broken thread, oftentimes, that brings you back to the thing you want to reach. And one of those things were these little Appalachian songs that are, in effect, uh, Scots songs. The Scots, some of the Scots, as you know, left probably during the clearances or whatever it was, went to Northern Ireland. And then the penal laws were passed there, which affected not only Catholics, but it's often forgotten also Protestants. And on the dissenters in particular, and on they went to America, I'm sure in disgust and outrage, and went as far up the mountains as they could get. So nothing like this, like that would ever happen to them again, I imagine. And a little song, all these little songs that we know from, the Stanley brothers, Ralph Stanley, one of the great singers, uh, seemed to have a truth in them, sometimes very sentimental, but had a sort of, ineradicable truth that helped me find the book. So brace yourselves, Bridget's and John's. I have to sing briefly at the beginning. (laughs) It'll be very terrible, but only for two minutes. Uh, And then I'll read a little passage uh, when they're they're engaged in the Civil War together, John uh, and Thomas, which was a curious war. Almost an Irish Civil War in some ways, because we do think a lot about our own Civil War. But even in the American Civil War, uh, there were thousands of Irishmen, and sometimes running down a field, shouting "For a ballad! which is the old battle cry, against a crowd of other Irish fellows running up the field, shouting "For a ballad! and that's the American Civil War from the Irish point of view. <laughs> so th- this is what he—this he, is what he—he he, uh, he, just one particular little battle he's in. He wants to tell us about that. Okay. Oh, what is this? Taking hold of me, blinding my eye, so I can't see. A hobblin' my tongue, till I can't talk. A in my leg, till I can't walk.
2: Oh, oh day. Oh, 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 death,
0: won't you spy me over for another
2: year? Sense of ferocious danger then descends when we reach the spot where we must deploy. News is the boys in gray are beaded into the great line of woods that seem to rush down that country. Three long, great meadows rise to a bare and blasted headland, deep three-foot grasses such as would make a cow hurry on to partake. Our batteries are arranged in expert-wise, and by afternoon our sections positioned and good. Something building in the hearts of the soldiers, if you could see that thing, it might have strange wings, something fluttering in their breasts, and then a great clattering of wings... <laughs> Our muskets are loaded and where we are a line of 50 men kneels and another 50 stand behind and then a loading line and then men there anxious and silent ready to step forward and fill the gaps. The field guns start firing into the trees and soon we are marveling at the explosions such as we ain't ever seen before. Fire and blackness bursts in the treetops and then you might think the green of the forest washes forward and back to close the destructed place. All this a quarter mile off and then we see the gray coated soldiers appear at the raveled margin of the trees. Captain is peering through his glass and he says something I can't hear and it's spoken back in a relay and it sounds like he is saying there is about 3,000 men. That sounds like a great number but we're just a thousand more. The yellow legs group on the top meadow and our batteries are trying to get a pin on them. Then they are getting a pin, and then the rebels are moving down because there ain't nothing joyous in receiving well-served bombs. The rebels run down towards us in a fashion never expected, at least by me. And then when they come in range, the officers steady us and then call out to fire, and then we fire. Those crazy rebels go down in numbers, and then just like the forest, seem to close with green courage over the gaps of deaths, and then they keep coming on. Each line of us reloads and fires, reloads and fires, and now the rebs are firing, some by standing for a moment, some on the hoof as they hurry down. It ain't the slow march we were taught at all, but a lurching wild gallop of human creatures. You wouldn't think so many could be killed and it not stop them, and then all around us we are falling with a bullet in a face or a bullet in a arm. Those fierce little mini-a bullets that open in your poor soft corpse. Then the captain screams out to fix our bayonets and then we are bid to stand and then we are bid to charge. Of my little bunch of men one still kneels in day's conviction so I deftly kick him to his feet and on we go. Now we are one heart running but the grass is tufty and thick and it is hard to run nobly and we are stumbling and cursing like drunkards. But somehow by fierce tuck of strength we keep our feet and suddenly it seems desirable to lock with our foe. And suddenly the grass seems no obstacle at all. And one in the company cries out, a balla! And then there is a sound made in our throats we have never heard. And there is a great hunger to do we know not what, unless it is stick our bayonets into the rush of grey ahead. But not just that, because there is another thing, or other things we have no names for, because it is not part of usual talk. It is not like running at Indians who are not your kind, but it is is running at a mirror of yourself. These Johnny Rebs are Irish, English, and all the rest. Canter on, canter on, and enjoin. But suddenly then the Rebs swing right and turn their charge across the meadow. They've seen the great swathe of our men come up behind and maybe seen a engine of death complete. And whatever it is, we can hear the officers calling out in the chaotic uproar. We're stopped in our charge and kneel and load and fire. We kneel and load and fire at the side-on millipede of the enemy. Our batteries belch forth their bombs again, and the Confederates balk like a huge herd of wild horses and run back ten yards and then ten yards reversed again. They greatly desire to reach the cover of the far woods. The batteries belch behind, they belch behind. Some bombs come so low, they want to pass through us too, and many fall in our lines as a missile forges a bloody ditch through living men. A frantic weariness infects our bones. We load and fire, we load and fire. Now in the burgeoning noise, dozens of shells hit into the enemy, sharding them and shredding them. There is a sense of sudden wretchedness and disaster. Then with a great bloom, like a sudden infection of spring flowers, the meadow becomes a strange carpet of flames. The grass has caught fire and is generously burning, and adding burning to burning, so dry it cannot flame fast enough, so high that the blades combust in great tufts and wash the legs of the fleeing soldiers, not with soft grasses, but dark flames full of a roaring strength. Wounded men fallen in the furnace cry out with horror and affront. Pain such as no animal could bear without wild screeching, tearing, rearing. The main body of soldiers find the mercy of the trees and their wounded are left now on the blackened earth. What is it causes the captain to halt our firing and by relayed message halt the guns? Now we are merely standing watching and the wind blows the conflagration up the meadow, leaving many a howling man and a quiet man in its wake. The quiet are in their black folds of death. Others where the fire hasn't touched are just groaning and ruined men. We are bid retire. Our surge of blue draws back 200 yards Yards and boys go out in gu- gunless details from the rear and there are the medical boys and the chaplain too. Out from the rebel trees come similar souls likewise, and a truce is struck without a word. Muskets are thrown down both sides, and the details charge up now not to fire and kill, but to stamp out the black acre of lingering flames and tend the dying, the rended and the burned, like dancers dancing on the charred grasses. Little birdie, oh, little
0: birdie,
2: Why do you fly so high? It's because I am a pretty little bird, and I do not wish to die. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to hear you read. The battle scenes throughout the book are incredibly vivid. There is one uh, early on against the Indians where Thomas compares the men who have slaughtered women, children and babies against the rules of war. He compares them to dogs who have been killing lambs. And there is a sense of adrenaline among the men in certain scenes and a desire not just to kill but to annihilate the enemy. I'm interested in your take on what happens to humanity in the heat of the heat of battle.
0: Well one of the, um, the great benisons of living in the countryside in Wicklow in the mountains is as a form of research you have access to rarely seen moments of total carnage that actually, I say it's a benison, but it, just to get that note that's in the book, you have to witness certain things. And one of the things I witnessed was we had a beautiful, uh, of all dogs, standard uh, poodle. Beautiful, big, black dog, which we used to cut down to the skin nearly. Beautiful hunting dog. And he was always running away. And one day, myself and Toby and my son, when Toby was maybe 15, got in the car to find Billy because we're in sheep country uh, and of course you're sweating already in the in the cold spring and out of love and fear for the dog and fear for the lambs too uh, and we were about a half a mile away from up on the wrong side of the hill and we looked down into the valley and Toby with his young eyes could see Billy far far away like a the galaxy andromeda just black spot on in the field and and something going on in the field and we drove as fast as we could and billy probably had only been in the field for 2 minutes he, he crossed the barri- the he crossed out of our garden crossed the fields to these and these lambs had just been put in and the farmer was in tears because uh, he'd, he'd brought them through the, the lambing period from February and this was the first beautiful day and he'd put them out in the field and, of course, Billy probably had sensed that. And it was the utter efficiency, the extravagant violence of this dog, this beautiful dog, vis-a-vis four or five now very dead little lambs that struck me. And Billy, I knew it in that moment, of course, that I had to put the dog down and even as I put him into the back of the, the car, he was trembling with joy. And he thought he had done a great thing. And maybe in this history of his species, he had done a great thing. I mean, he had, he had found food or whatever he thought he was doing. That note of extravagant desire, trembling desire, was curiously enough struck again for me when I was reading a little memoir by a man called William Otter. And uh, it's just a sort of lost memoir that uh, University Press published in America. And he was a plaster on the East Coast. Anyone here with houses will know how valuable a good plaster is. <laughs> and he was a very good plaster. But in this book, he ta- it's in the 1850s, and he talks about going down with his friends into the Irish districts of Philadelphia with clubs and weapons and trying to deliver on a merciful beating to the Irish who were in that part of town. And he doesn't describe this event with uh, remorse, because he's writing it as an older man, or looking back and wishing he hadn't done this. He's writing it with absolute joy. This note of strange violence, strange to us possibly, although we're not so sure anymore, are we? Um, I took note of, because it seemed to me valuable for the book, where these two boys in an effort to stay alive in America. The only work they can do is in the army, so they, they do that work. And they're good soldiers. And just as in the book I wrote about the First World War, there's an emergency in a battle where you simply must try and get through it. And to get through it, you need to have engendered in you this fierceness, this ancient fierceness of the creature we are, not Homo sapiens. Well, actually, yes, Homo sapiens, but also Australopithecus, also the ancient people from, from the harmonies from which we come because that we wouldn't be here possibly without this strange instinct so I was content, let's put it that way in approaching these battles to try and see them through Thomas's eyes and certainly not my eyes and to try and describe that, that Billy-esque um, passion for killing which is actually It's, it's very, very, very shocking. But it's, the thing about battles in America is that first they were called great victories against the Native Americans and then they've been later called massacres, which is what they were. But as soon as a battle is over or a massacre, it starts to be dressed up as something else, sort of heroic moment or a, a, a great moment in American history. or it, it just starts to become something else. But the thing itself, as the Greeks say, as Plato said, the thing itself, before you start to talk about it, is seems to me, does contain these moments of unrestrained violence.
1: Let's talk about Thomas, Thomas McNulty. He's not the first Thomas McNulty in the sequence of, of novels you've written about, the McNulty and the Dunn families, but let's talk about him here. How did the character come to you with this
0: very distinctive voice? Well, by hook or by crook. Um, I, my research began for the book when I was probably 10 uh, in my grandfather's bed in our old house in Monkstown uh, I don't know how it was over here but in the 60s and 70s an old house was so damn cold that you hoped you had a grandfather or something for central heating laughter So I would slip into bed beside him, shivering, shivering like poor Billy. Uh, And he had been everywhere, um, all over the world. He'd been in the British Merchant Navy. He was an Irish, working class Irish guy from Sligo. Been in the Merchant Navy towards the end of the First World War as a radio operator, very brave man. Uh, In the Second War, he was uh, in bomb disposal uh, as a royal engineer. So he had traveled the world so he had lots to tell me about which increased the the heating level in the bed when you're nine or ten. Sometimes when I talk about this I mention also that he was a rather champion farter and (laughs) he would actually say keep the heat in when he farted so I wouldn't move. (laughs) So we were working hard at keeping warm in that bed. And then one day he told me um, he, said, he just said it in passing, it must have been, because I don't even remember exactly, but it was probably half sentence. He said one of his uncles had been in the Indian Wars. No. He didn't need to tell me what they were, because I'd been up to the Adelphi Cinema every Saturday. And the girls and boys of Monkstown and Dunleary crammed together for some reason, herded in, and shown these probably very inexpensive films, good enough for kids. It was mostly cowboys, B-movies. So I thought I knew what he was talking about. And it probably took me then another 20 or 30 years before I realized I I didn't really know what he was talking about. And at the very end of that process, this unnamed man uh, was a little friendship I had with a man called Peter Matheson, who you may remember, very great writer, who, who was very involved with Native America as it is now. And somewhere between those two points, those two points of this, what is that, 50 years of this man nesting in me. Uh, he, he, I, I, I can't actually explain this book adequately, uh, unfortunately, but um, he just seemed to be there eventually. I mean, it took me obviously decades waiting for him. And when he did arrive in my workroom to tell me this story, uh, he certainly knew who he was, even if I didn't. And the confidence in him was very impressive to me the, the making of the book, which was really listening to him t- telling me his story, uh, was so, I don't, enjoyable is not the word, it was so maddening in a way, it was so, it felt rather ancient in itself that I, I was sure when I'd finished that the book was no good. Now some of you may agree with me, but uh, I delivered it and my lovely editor who's here today, Angus Cargill, it's was Christmas time. And... Uh, he took two weeks to get back, and he usually gets back in a day. And uh, I thought, this is, this is bad news. This is going to be really rough now after Christmas. But it's okay. In January, I'm going to write another book, and everything will be fine. I'll save the day. And Of course, I've forgotten that Angus has two small children. <laughs> You're going to be reading a book over Christmas with <laughs> two small children? No. So, and then he, ra- he, he rang up, and there was a beautiful conversation. And I was impressed by that because I didn't know where I was doing it. It's very unlike my other books. And, um, you know, your question is, how do you make this man? I I feel in a sense that he has made me because he came at a time when, you know, I'm 62 and it came at a time when I was wondering, you know, what does that mean for a writer? what, What happens to you as a writer? Do they take you outside and shoot you or do they bring you up doing Angus on the Iron Islands and throw you off the cliff, I wasn't quite sure (laughs) but instead we published this book and had the most lovely time and I put it down completely to Thomas McNulty, whoever he was and I believe this is who he was and and his capacity not only for this work that he has to do but for love and that was the important thing for me this man was in love with the world he was in love with this harsh place where he found himself and he was very much in love with, with handsome John Cole handsome John
1: Cole is. Well, we, we learn early on that John Cole becomes beloved John Cole. It's a love affair that is described with great delicacy and tenderness. John Cole, my beau. John Cole, my love. And you say handsome John Cole. He always has his, his full name.
0: Well, he is in the Russian style, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you, when you read Dostoevsky out loud, it's maddening because everyone has seven names. <laughs> so at least he only has three names.
1: I read the relationship as one to use an old fashioned word that is is discreet but some readers have questioned the fact you could have an open homosexual relationship in the army in in life of of that time but you must have researched all that
0: Well 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 the boon to a writer again the benison to a writer is that it is by necessity and by definition a secret history and it's 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 there to guess your way into more than anything else. There were little hints and scraps of remnant glories, as you might say. For instance, in the 1850s in San Francisco, these great heroic men would put on their dresses, you know, they just happened to be cross-dressing, and, and, and walk through the streets of San Francisco to make that the glorious thing it is. So that in this new world, despite all the chaos and mayhem this would would be possible, Uh, and then by 1863 some idiot, uh, an idiot of the kind we're seeing more of now at the moment in America, uh, issued an edict to say that this was forbidden. But you can see what was going on. And the amazing thing was that because there were so few women west of of the Missouri and the Mississippi, uh, men were occupying not just... um, not just public spaces usually occupied by women, but also private spaces. And I think the... I mean, anyone who's been in the Army or anyone who's been in the Navy, anyone who's been to school, knows what, you know, there are loves between men that happen because there are no women. But at the same time, this is, um, seemed to me, a beautiful possibility. Let's call it that. And yet, actually, when you read it rather carefully, as, uh, as I rather carefully composed it, uh, they are incredibly discreet. And they are not showing themselves. Um, people are accepting them because they're two friends. Uh, very few people would be privy to their love, in, in essence, in the book. When they go down to Tennessee, Lige Megan is their great friend. And, and you know, frankly, the people on their farm have been through so much horror during the Civil War, including um, the two uh, brother and sister who are, are the, the black people in the house that they, it's just not enough to comment on, do you know? And that, that was lovely as well. The fact of the matter is that uh, well, what they say? Seven or ten percent of us are gay, right? So from the beginning of time. And for some reason this other ninety percent uh, section of has made it their business to oppress, to hunt, to kill, to dismay, to dis- d- diminish, to criminalize, to torture this other part of our creatureliness. And I'm, therefore, this history has to have occurred, whether it's in secret or in quiet. And it behoves me as a stupid straight man, utterly in love with my son who happens to be gay, to go back and find sights of um, glory and safety and radiance. I mean, I wish, no, no, I think, I'm sure she does, but I hope, let's put it that way, my wife loves me as much as Thomas loves John Cole. And there's a moment in the book when I was writing it that I was like Billy, trembling, but for a different reason, because he says they were walking in the moonlight. And Thomas says, John calls. The, the, the moonlight can't flatter him because he's already beautiful. And I thought, how many pairs of shoes do I need to buy for my wife before she in? <laughs> you know, that's what overwhelmed me. And, uh, and uh, my, um, well, one decent pair, I'd say, <laughs> at least. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, Toby, my son, who's uh, 20 now, a very formidable person, very gifted, very beautiful person. Very in love with his, his boyfriend, who's called Jack. Um, took it upon himself, I think was ne- necessary. Because, I mean, of course, uh, we, we have lots of gay friends and everything. I mean, most of Irish literature, unfortunately, is written by gay people. No, not stupid straight people like me. Uh, so I'm very aware of that. I can't really be a proper Irish writer until I'm gay. Uh, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Yeah. But Toby. Um, I'd come to Bean, I mean, for God's sake. But anyway, Toby showed me. I mean, we sat in the chairs. I used to sit in the chairs with my daughter Carl, who's now uh, the MMR, the mixed martial arts correspondent for the Metro Online, watching Liverpool matches in those chairs in the Dublin Mountains. But with Toby, I sat in the chairs and we wa- watched RuPaul's Drag Race, three seasons. I just thought, first of all, who are these amazing people? You know, a lot of these. P- men have been, had terrible upbringings, gone through hell, and then by this medium of cross dressing become kind of manifest angels. That's what it looked like to me. And I'm looking at the f- television, but I also, also, at the corner of my eye, I'm, I'm looking at Toby and thinking, my God, this is a very important thing to have in the house here. Well, this is an incredible, incredible resource. And I did conclude, at the end of it, that to be to be gay is not something to tolerate. You know, we're told to tolerate. What's that mean? Uh, it's not it's something to be revered. This is an incredibly important manifestation of us. And the quality of the love that I've witnessed between my son, say, and his boyfriend, which I'm sure is ubiquitous and universal. And, uh, lots of instances of this, but I'm privileged to see this instance was so much more magisterial and beautiful and carefully worked out and mathematically correct than, say, the Mayhemic relationships I would have had at that age with, with, with poor, unfortunate young women <laughs> in Ireland. And I'm sorry in retrospect, I apologize. <laughs> because, because, because they're reading each other with information that they already have, which is the crucial thing. Because the unreadable unknown, especially in Ireland, you know, when you, you go to school just with boys, and you don't, apart from your mother and your sister, you've never really, you know, you've n- never encountered a person until you're suddenly kissing them, and, and, and then the drama goes downhill right from there. Uh, but So I thought this is something really important, because I thought, you know, c- kids in school could learn something really important about how to love from a, from a love like this. So part of my evil plan, then, with the book, was to be as precise as I could be about this love I had witnessed, say, between my son and Jack and put it in the book. So that the book would not just go, you know, to beautiful, radiant Scottish people who are full of liberality and kindness and (laughs) reverence for all things gay. But also, say, Nigeria, where the laws are vile and still and vicious. And also into Mike Spence's bedroom. I hope he reads it. Is that his name? Uh, Pence? Mike Pence? Uh, I hope he's reading it at night because I want to transform this. I want to release people from this stupidity, this straight stupidity, the thickness, stupidness, as the Romans said, so that they can uh, spot the radiance. I mean, if you love a a sunset or a sunrise on a great landscape, then you have to love the world of gaiety, as one might call it. Well, it is a a radiant relationship between...
1: uh Thomas and John Cole, and I don't think anybody will ever uh, forget it. Read, reading this book, it, makes, it also makes you stop, stop breathing for for a moment. Friendship, the quality of friendship, is also also shines through this this book, and um, and yet Thomas ultimately murders his friend, Starling Carlton. Justice is a troubled a troubled concept here, and Thomas is not innocent in this narrative.
0: No, and and none of us are in the narrative of our life, we would love to be and we would love to surround ourselves with people who tell us all the time you know, we're wonderful and innocent, but of course we're not and friendship, I've written a lot about fathers because I have a profoundly dysfunctional relationship with my father so sometimes I try to will fathers into being you know, good fathers, like in the play The Steward of or in the book A Long, Long Way where the father is struggling with his political views versus his love for his son and friendship I mean I have a beautiful friend called Ivor Brown who reveled in the title of chief psychiatrist of Ireland isn't that a title <laughs> and uh, he was a busy man let me tell you <laughs> and he you know I mean he looked at me for a long time he's the godfather of my kids and you know, he's been looking at me and he, he you know, he does call me Mr. Asperger's and all the rest. But because it's difficult, it's difficult to, for me to... I mean, when I connect with a friend, I'm afraid it is, it is so much a radical love affair that it's probably a bit uncomfortable for the person suffering this. I have a beautiful friend, Roy Foster. Sometimes I think I scare him to death. But, do you know, therefore I've written a lot about Friendship because I'm trying to, you know, as a scientist, nearly. Just as the quantum physicists, physicist is trying to write about Andromeda or, or the nature of the stars or how many stars there are, I'm trying to write about friendship because it seems sometimes very far away. But I want to bring it nearer. I also feel at 62 that your time is just closing in a little bit to, to learn these techniques. The fact in the book is that Starling Carlton is, one, is a character in the book, if you haven't read it, who, I mean, he is a rough man and he, he's a soldier with them and he's older and he's large and he's sweating. And, he's, and his, his fame is as a, a child taker in California before he's joined the army. That's to say he was taking Native American children and bringing them to the cities to sell them as servants. I mean, it's not a good story. And he's not a good man in that sense. He's not a Kalos Anthropos, he's not. But he, they're in the army together and they're all not innocent together. And Thomas is, loves him as the human being that he is. And he knows what sort of human being he is. And uh, I don't think it's giving away too much in the book to tell you that uh, there is a moment where he has to choose between Winona, the Native American Sioux woman that they take as a young girl, initially as a servant actually, but who becomes their daughter Or let's say they become her parents. She turns them into her parents in the most magical way. Uh, But he has to choose between Starling and her. And I won't tell you which he chooses, but I'm sure you can imagine. And it is a moment of violence, and maybe it is a moment of legal jeopardy for him. Uh, That's not the thing that gets him ultimately into the biggest trouble, as we find out in the book. But yes. We like, sometimes in our books, we like our characters to be lovable, and you have to feel close to them. But I think the greater victory for us as human beings in the world as well is to fully love the person who is almost catastrophically imperfect. Do you know Those people you've won as friends. uh, It it is a sort of victory over the creature we are. So I was sort of looking to itemize that in the book. Thank you
1: very much indeed. Thomas is looking back over 50 years, I think, of his life and wondering where the years went. And he says early in the novel that his memory isn't perfect. He says, the mind is a wild liar and I don't trust much in it that I find there. Are we meant to believe everything that Thomas describes to us?
0: Well, are, are we, we? see when, yeah, well, when we were children, we were meant to believe everything our parents told us. And then when we weren't children, we realized most of it wasn't very true. <laughs> so are we supposed to believe everything that everyone tells us? Well, evidently not. Because, uh, unfortunately, one of our great accomplishments as a creature is, is lying. I don't know if the robins lie to each other in the garden, but I, f- I don't s- suppose they do. In, in the, another book of mine called The Secret Scripture, if anyone's read that, Roseanne, who is, who is 99, is trying to write an account of her life, not for anything, anyone but herself. And she puts it under the floorboards. She doesn't want anyone to read it. She's in, an, she's in an asylum, as they call them. And she's very alone. And she's giving an account of her life. And her doctor, Dr. Green, has access to another document, which is written by this priest called Father Gaunt, which is also about something, things that have happened to Roseanne. And between those two things, you realize that um, it's probably true that sometimes Roseanne is not giving you the the factual account. Dr. Green at one point says, um, it's obvious that that, uh, Father Gaunt is telling the truth, uh, maliciously telling the truth. He said, but he prefers Roseanne's untruth because it radiates health. I mean, it's not just the forgetfulness of our minds that may inc- increase with age. It's also our investment in versions of things that happened that we cannot be criticized for investing in because we believe them to be true. So th- there's a difference between telling something that's not true and telling a lie. Because sometimes you think the thing that's... that's not, I mean, all the couples here will have had many, many experiences in bed, well, I hope very good experiences in bed as well, but also that experience of being in bed and your partner's telling you something about what happened with Auntie Sybil, which you happen to be a witness to, and you say, well, no, I'm sorry, that's not what happened. What actually happened was uh, Sybil murdered the dog and the parrot, no, no, she murdered the parrot and the dog's, anyway, you, you know what I'm talking about. It, there isn't, a, I mean, this is the tragedy of the historian from my point of view my beautiful friend, Roy Foster, for instance, is that they depend upon sources and documents. But as soon as something is written down, pen to paper, by whom, in the first place, is it The Victor wrote this account, you're already in the realm of untruth. Uh, And it's inescapable. So Thomas is not immune to that, to answer your question. He is, um, but the point about Thomas is not the veracity of what he's saying, it's the miracle of what he's witnessed. And he's trying to talk about miracles. And he's trying to remember it. And he's under pressure to remember it. Uh, and he wants to tell you. But he, the main imperative of a, book, of a book, it seems to me, of any novel is, well, there might be two traditions. I mean, there's the great Paul Auster tradition, which is intellectual tradition, John Banville. Uh, to a certain degree, calm to being, but he straddles both. And then there's the other sort of the uh, word, Colm, by the way, hates storytelling. He hates when you call him a storyteller, so don't, don't risk it if he's <laughs> <out> <laughs> when he's here. Um, <laughs> but it's, it is that dynamic of you and me in the fire. And if I'm telling the story, it has to have a certain sort of propulsion and interest, or you're going to fall asleep. And it, it's that, really, that drives a book. It's the it's it turn on a sixpence, impromptu nature of even a well-known story, which gave you know, the Homeric stories their shape. From being told and told and told for maybe 600 years before anyone wrote them down Uh, and and that's what I'm sort of after as well it's as if um, I always feel that books aren't written I'm actually trying to present them almost in an oral form like before they're a book I mean this is almost just a document like somebody was there and 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 recorded Thomas you know for the BBC in the 1850s and this is what he said and somebody could come later on like call him you know, a proper writer, you might say, and make a lovely book out of it. But you know that it's a kind of proto-document, proto-book, which is before it becomes, uh, uh, is it raw, is the word. And Seamus, used, Seamus Heaney used to make the distinction between raw and cooked poetry. And his was cooked poetry. And then he would say, well, Brendan Kennelly is raw poetry. And they're just two different traditions, really.
1: Well, it's a wonderful story if I am allowed to use the word story. Let's go to the Uh audience for questions. We've got two microphones on either side. If you'd like to ask a question, just put up your hand. (sighs) If you could wait till the microphone reaches you, then we'll all be able to to hear. So who would like to ask a question? Right, there's a a hand going up just here.
0: I, I loved your use of language in the characters of Thomas McNulty. And I wondered where you got the voice from, where you got the dialogue, and uh, mm. it just felt so true, but so un-Irish. Well, not un-Irish, but, but you know, in <coughs> yeah. some ways un-Irish. Well, that, that, was the, that was the challenge, to get a tincture of Irishness. Uh, I, I've been, strangely enough, I've been trying to study this for about 30, 40 years which is English in all its various guises, Pigeon English, as they call it, and all the Englishes that exist in the former empire and all all over the world. And uh, and what was, how did Americans, it's always intrigued me, how did Americans end up with the accents they have, the many different accents they have in America, and what contributed to that. And I had a a lovely friend who happened to be an ambassador uh, to Ireland, uh, Tom Foley, uh, who became a dear friend, Republican though he is. And, <laughs> and he sent me a l- number of lovely books about, um, but I was introduced to him by Gene Kennedy, so it's all right. But uh, about this whole thing of Norfolk, English going to America originally, and then, and how even the forms of government and discourse in America still can be traced back to these original, rather, you know, local small town people. And all the belief systems are, can be traced back. Because with the language, attached to the language, are all the lives that ever lived in that language. And I do believe that if you can find the language, even to make it up, you can, you can, you can conjure back or jimmy back or steal back from the cold hand of death as it were, a whole human being. So uh, probably 20 years ago I wrote a little play for Dominic, Dominic Dr- Drumgoole, who was here the other day in the Bush Theatre, which is called White Woman Street. And it was my first attempt to... I had a, a Chinese-American, uh, I had a guy from the South, black guy from the South, I had um, an Irishman, I had a fellow from the north of England. Uh, their lingo in the play was an attempt to see what that crucible would do to their different Englishes and then put them together uh, by, and through intimacy creating their own familiar languages, you might say, as a group of more or less outlaws together. Uh, and similarly here, but it's taken an awful long time and uh, it isn't knowing, it, in a way knowing anything about it hasn't helped very much, unless it's sunk deep and then I could access it through writing the book, but um, it was really, it's 2015 in the in the early autumn and I've been nine months sitting with the book, I don't know if you're a writer yourself, but Nothing's more humiliating than sitting with a book that actually doesn't want to begin. And I was doing a lot of writing, you know, grand writing about the Irish famine. And it's all very great. I thought it was absolutely awful. And then he said, uh, the method of laying out a corpse in Missouri sure took the proverbial cake. And I didn't know what he was talking about. It's the first sentence of the book. But I knew it was him. And he was in the room. Just as sure as the robin is, it was in the garden, Thomas was in the room. So I trusted that. I mean, maybe, yes, we learn how to put on the space, the, um, the suit, and we learn how to work the controls of the rocket, and we know where the moon is, and we hope the scientists know how to get us there. And that's research or trying to think about language. But in the moment of going to the moon, you know, nothing helps you but luck. And I felt it was my enormous luck that Thomas, in that moment in my life as well, this benighted descendant of his. Uh, poor at friendship, struggling to understand the world, and and he gave me this account of his life. And I, when I, when he told when he was telling me all this for months, few months in this house, and I, I know I trusted him implicitly, and and I didn't tr- try to do too much. But I did feel it was an enormous wickedness, and it has nearly driven me insane writing ungrammatically. Don't know if you've ever done that. It can actually cause you to have a sort of <laughs> sort of mental fog. For I think it's still there, where where I have to test um, every word that nearly I say it, it, to make sure, because you know his use of uh, verbs and uh, uh, past participles is, is is eccentric. And it was great fun to do, but it's been almost ruinous. In <laughs>
1: thank you. Another question coming from the far side. Um, I really enjoyed the book, thank you. Um, did you, um, I, I saw a lot of parallels between the, both the Indian Wars and the Civil War in your story, um, and the news I was listening to at the time, which was is Syria. Hmm. Were there any intentions to draw any parallels between other civil wars, I suppose?
0: Well, well, no intentions because most writerly intentions are bad intentions. If you're trying to harness your little rowing boat to the great <laughs> ship of history, you're going to, you know, it's going to swamp you. But I did notice, uh, I mean, it was... I was being overwhelmed just as you were, not only by, at that time, the, the story in Syria, but I- in America itself, and in indeed vis-a-vis Syria, that seemed very pertinent when they talked about not allowing Syrians into America. Um, m- maybe it's too simplistic to say that all, that there, are, you know, there are, like there are six souls, there are only ten moments in history and mutatis mutandis, if you describe one, you've described the others. They are atrociously similar, and if you go to the root of it, like I was talking about, uh, there's simply nothing good about it. So you have to write about the nothing good, which sounds like it could be dismaying, but uh, for a writer, actually, it's as if you've talked back to authority in a funny way when you're doing it. You're trying to give the lie to the liar, what I, can't quite, uh, what I can't quite encompass as a living, breathing human person is our capacity for, for total violence visited upon another group of people. When the children were in Calais, for instance, were even being doubted as being children and no move was being made by this, you know, essentially fantastic country to rescue these people. Um, are, I mean, how many times do you need your heart broken uh, before you write a book, you might say? So all that is in, in it, but useless to Syria, useless to the Native Americans of the 1850s. And in the uselessness of fiction of a story lies its importance. Because it's in that moment when we're alive and we realize that everything we've experienced, essentially, because there are more stars than there are grains of sand on the earth, is unimportant, transitory, and useless. That's our glory, that we can still uh, strive to, just for a moment, touch something better. You know, in that great sea of uselessness. Uh, So it's not just a compassion. We don't just have a compassion. In the moment of allowing Syria, you know, we are both Syrians and the aggressor. This, This is the terrifying, this is our terrifying condition. And then what do we do? What do we do in our métier? Maybe if you're a plasterer, you just plaster better. Do you know? Maybe if you're a writer, you just try and write till, till your feet fall off and your ears burst. Or a painter, to do your best painting. And that's the only answer there is. A useless answer to the uselessness uh, of, our, of our human history. And there's our glory.
1: Question here, thank you. Do you think there's a design fault in human nature in that violence and aggression and power and even looking at the wars of today with pride and power as something that we necessarily have to have in order to get the better side of ourselves or is it something that we could be without
0: ten volumes later. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's the perfect question. It's the question that's been posed by all the philosophers since the beginning of speech and time, human time. And I mean, there are various challenges with it because if we didn't have human aggression, then how would we protect our children? If a wolf is approaching your child, or a predatory person, our instinct to defend is actually um, a chemical response in the body, a visceral, powerful, superhuman moment in the parent who is going to grapple with this danger. Uh, and my suspicion is it's the same it's the same thing as used in battle against other people. I even thought, "Oh. We have so many sorrowful things to talk about now, we should only talk about happy things, but when um, Mr. Trump proudly announced that he had dropped the mother of all bombs on Afghanistan, uh, not knowing who he had bombed, what he had bombed, how many many living creatures he had killed, and to call it the mother of (laughs) all bombs. The mother? Excusez-moi, Monsieur Le Trump. Uh, A mother is a symbol of winnowing out aggression in its usefulness and excluding all other aggressiveness. That's my understanding. I mean, my understanding of man, unfortunately men, is that we are rather unfinished creatures. And that, in effect, I'm not meaning to flatter you, that that woman is the finished article. Uh, So I can only suppose that you should be answering your own question and you would know better than (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm, me. Thank you. Thank you. you. And there we have to to leave it. Sebastian will be signing copies of Days Without End in the signing tent. Do join us there if you would. Um, Many thanks to the Hawthorne Literary Retreat who have supported this event. And in the
0: meantime... I'd just like to say... and myself okay. and Oliver Reynolds, great Welsh poet, were the first two people in the Hawthornden Retreat in 1985. Uh-huh. And if you ever get a tenancy up there or a what day, um, fellowship, you'll see our names first on one of the doors, fading, but written still in gold letters.
1: That's fantastic. Thank you.